good afternoon or good morning to everyone joining us, depending on where in the world you are. My name is Susan Bratsky, and I am a senior policy analyst with MPI's International Program. I am very happy to welcome you to our conversation today on strengthening refugee engagement in community sponsorship programs. First, I have a few housekeeping notes. If you have any technical problems, please email events at migrationpolicy.org. We will also have a question and answer session at the end of the call. There will not be a voice Q&A, so please be sure to type any questions into the Q&A box, or you can email them to events at migrationpolicy.org. I want to note before we jump in that this webinar is part of an initiative being led by the Irish Refugee Protection Program, IRPP, and supported by the Belgian Reception Agency, FEDASIL, and the Migration Policy Institute, MPI Europe. The three-year project is co-financed by the European Commission under the Asylum, Migration, and Integration Fund. Please be sure to check MPI's website for upcoming work related to the initiative, which is called Building Capacity for Private Sponsorship in the European Union, or CAPS-EU. We are speaking today about the role of refugees in community sponsorship. In Europe and elsewhere, community sponsorship programs have emerged over the last several years as a way to try and capitalize on, <coughs> apologies, as a way to try and capitalize on some of the interest and resources that local communities can bring to support refugee resettlement. These programs promise to bring the value of individuals, networks, time, and interest to refugee resettlement, and hopefully um, to provide more and better support to refugees during their first few months in a country. But there's one group that is often overlooked when we talk about sponsors and community sponsorship, and that's the role of people who themselves have lived experience uh, as refugees and lived experience of displacement. So today we're going to look more closely at what role refugees themselves can play in community sponsorship programs, why it makes sense to engage refugees in sponsorship, and how their role can be strengthened. We have an excellent panel lined up to take on this topic today. And first, I am delighted to hand the floor over to Anna Koulibaly, who is a project officer at the International Migration Commission Europe, where she works on refugee sponsorship and leads ICMC's work on refugee participation. Anna, could you tell us what the state of play is with regard to refugee participation in sponsorship programs in Europe at the moment? How have uh, former refugees been involved in community sponsorship today? Thank you, Susan. Uh, hi, good morning or good afternoon to everyone. Um, so first of all, I just wanted to say that, yeah, when we speak about participation, we speak about meaningful participation. So that means that um, obviously participation can take many forms, even a tokenistic intervention or mere consultation can be considered participation. But we really want to like in further um, meaningful participation that goes beyond a box ticking exercise and really must happen on an equal level um, with people that are prepared and trained for their interventions and the space feels like a safe space where they can express themselves and feel heard and listened to. Um, so for us really participation should not come as an afterthought but really be part of um, the design um, the implementation and also the monitoring and evaluation and giving feedback on programs and policies um, 
So I think, yeah, we all sort of know and agree that it's really important to include uh, persons with lived experience for creating evidence-based programs and policies. Um, so it really just makes sense to include them. But it's also, I think, important that we acknowledge that each of them have uh, a specific set of skills and networks that they bring with them that also need to be leveraged. And I think a lot of the times you'll find that um, newcomers and persons with lived experience have are part of diaspora networks or refugee-led initiatives um, or even are engaged in volunteering work. And so this also needs to be leveraged as well as their experience uh, of uh, fleeing and integrating into a new country. Um, so what we've found uh, is that refugee participation takes a lot of time to build the trust. Um, it also takes a lot of resources um, financially and also like dedicated staff time to really systematically engage um, refugees at every step of sponsorship programs. Um, I think that collectively we've made progress and moved beyond uh, tokenistic and mere consultative approach. But I think we still have like quite a long road ahead of us, uh, where also refugees should be part of building um, participatory approaches that they, yeah, that they're part of this as well. Um, and maybe I can give you some examples from our own network and also uh, from our partner countries. Um, in what type of participatory approaches uh, they are using. So in Belgium's community sponsorship program, uh, Caritas International actually employs intercultural mediators, which are persons who have lived experience. Um, and they are not only instrumental when it comes to language interpretation, when first the sponsors and the newcomers meet, but also they're sort of the, the bridge um, between um, the volunteers and uh, the refugees when they first arrive. And then they also um, run a peer-to-peer -peer project uh, where refugees can receive reliable information about culturally sensitive issues from peers and where they also meet other refugee families. Um, in France, there's a similar peer-to-peer -peer support project where in the first months of the arrival of the refugee family, um, a, a webinar is organized with previously sponsored refugees um, to sort of discuss uh, initial challenges and cultural sensitive issues. Um, Yes, and then in Ireland also, uh, there are refugee community organizations which are run for and by refugees that support sponsored refugees um, to become more included into their local areas. Um, and also in Ireland, um, refugee uh, sponsored refugees are training volunteers, like are delivering a part of the training for volunteers. Um, who will then receive newcomers. Uh, we've seen that in the UK, 
a lot of sponsored refugees are now also being part of volunteering groups, which is also a nice form of, of participation. And then sort of in our organization, which is a transnational network, we've established the refugee sponsorship mobilization platform, which is a platform where we gather all stakeholders um, to then discuss challenges and issues on community sponsorship. And there we really make sure that um, persons with lived experience and sponsored refugees uh, notably are really a part on an equal level with all these other stakeholders. Um, and we've had an evaluation into our network uh, where they've interviewed um, persons with lived experience who said that they felt that this mobilization platform was a safe space for them where they could express their opinions, challenges, um, ideas in the same way as any other stakeholder, which are universities, civil society organizations, um, local authorities, regional authorities. So we really managed to like build a platform um, where they can be heard as equal stakeholders. Um, and then also through this platform, we've developed the Refugee Advisor Program, which currently holds um, 15 refugee advisors who are from across uh, Europe who um, have been like mainstreamed into all of our uh, activities and some of them for example in Ireland have participated in um, an evaluation into the Irish uh, sponsorship program. Um, so I think that really we need to to start um, to change, like to radically change our, our thinking around refugee participation and genuinely empower refugees to, to influence the core functioning of community sponsorship programs. And to sort of sum up the different approaches that I've now mentioned, I think um, as organizations, we really need to be real with ourselves and start employing refugees. Um, We've seen that a lot of peer-to-peer -peer support initiatives really work well um, and are beneficial for newcomers. Um, to engage persons with lived experience in advocacy, um, they need to be trained, they need to feel empowered and have agency. Um, so we need to create the right settings for them to participate. Uh, of course, it's important to include refugee-led organizations and also foster the creation of more refugee-led organizations. Um, participation must be financially also well-resourced, of course. Um, and I think also it would be really important to give organizations the space to test and trial different participatory models, different approaches. It can happen on, on so many different levels. And I think it should just be, there's no one size fits all approach, but every organization, local authority needs to find their own ways of, of enabling um, participation. And also with that, I think um, we should also draw inspiration from uh, other initiatives or participatory mechanisms that worked well and maybe sometimes look beyond um, the usual suspects, which are then other European countries or Canada. But um, as we know, most refugees are actually hosted outside of Europe in the global south, and they have been coming up with some very uh, innovative ways to, to include refugees and 
Um, so I think these should also be part of the, the conversation and that we should listen to them and, and hear from their experiences. Thank you so much, Anna. I think that's an, uh, an excellent point, um, particularly with regard to drawing lessons from other contexts. I think, uh, you know, sitting here in a position where we we work uh, in the broader migration space as well. I think that's true across um, many of the different dimensions that we all work on uh, within resettlement more, more broadly or integration um, or migration programming. We tend to sort of look in one direction in terms of drawing lessons. And there are actually many other practices and experiences globally. And I think um, particularly in the area of refugee participation, as you mentioned, there's been a lot of movement to um, that are including refugee-led organizations and, and refugee voices themselves um, elsewhere in the world. And, and we should and be sure that we have a, a wider lens when we're um, looking to, to learn and pull experiences. Well, I want to turn the floor over now to Mauheb El-Noor. Uh, Mauheb is a medical student and volunteer sponsor in Ireland. She also has lived experience of being a former refugee herself. Uh, Mauheb, could you tell us why you decided to become a sponsor in Ireland? And more generally, based on your experiences, what roles you think that refugees um, could uh, could play in terms of supporting refugee sponsorship programs? Of course. Thank you very much, Susan. Um, good afternoon or good morning, everyone. Um, like Susan said, my name is Mohamed Noor, and I'm very honored today to join you to discuss strengthening refugee roles and community sponsorship programs. So uh, I suppose as a little bit of a background, I arrived with my family to Ireland um, 12, nearly 11 and a half years ago um, as a refugee fleeing conflict of Libya, the country where we lived in before. Um, I suppose going through the process of resettlement uh, as a refugee with my family, it was quite difficult. You are not just fleeing everything that you know, in addition to the war, but you are basically you are in a new community, a new space, in a new home, in a new country where you do not know much about starting from the language, end up with the culture. Adapting a new culture and facing uncertainty about my future and my family's was quite a difficult um, transition to have, despite the fact that we were in a safe country, um, which lends to the multidimensional aspect of resettlement of refugees um, in a new environment. Um, so, but however, I was quite fortunate as a family to be welcomed into communities in Ireland um, that provided us with support, opportunity and a chance to rebuild our life. It inspired me to want to pay that hospitality forward and help other refugees integrate successfully um, as we have. Um, so this has led me to become involved in the NACE uh, NACE uh, Community Sponsorship Programme, which is um, one of the many community sponsorship programmes around Ireland. This is the town where my family and I were um, settled in, and I thought it was um, quite appropriate uh, to take part in. Um, this programme, as um, you all know, uh, sponsors on the community level up uh, to welcome, integrate and support refugees as they arrive to Ireland and throughout their integration journey. So drawing that from my lived experience I can provide, I thought I could provide uh, insight into the challenges newcomers might face and how we can better assist them. So I second Anna's uh, views and that, that I see so many valuable ways refugees can take on, um, on more empowered roles in those programs beyond just being the recipient of aid. 
sponsors refugees can serve as advocates to share refugee stories and shape policy, which is very, very important. Um, they can help design and even co-led pre-arrival and training programs um, to educate sponsors and cross-culture communication. As mentors, the refugee themselves um, can provide a vital peer support for new arrivals navigating all aspects of um, integration. And by participating in the program coordination, they can ensure that services provided are culturally appropriate and informed by a refugee um, perspective. Refugee involvement lends those efforts incredibly um, in an incredible, important way. Um, because I generally, if you ask yourself, like who better to understand refugee needs and experiences other than the refugees themselves, by taking um, leadership as partners, advisors, and spokespeople, we can, or the refugee themselves, sorry, can amplify refugee voices and agents and lend agency in uh, system design that will serve refugees themselves. So it will be custom built by the people who know the best about the situation. So ultimately their contributions can lead to more representative, compassionate and comprehensive and definitely successful resettlement experience. I am committed to using my knowledge and skills and lived experience, I suppose, to create positive change. And I look forward to collaborating with all of you in this uh, shared vision. But above all, I see my role as a magnifier to voices of those with current and new lived experience. Because um, as much as I knew about being a refugee, time lends itself. 12 years is a long time for me to be the person who sits here and designs. It's, it's, I see my role, and if I, you could excuse me, our all roles, it's people who would amplify the voices for these systems that will be purposeful to the people that we need them. So thank you very much. I welcome all the questions. Um, thank you so much again for inviting me here. Thank you so much, Wahed. And uh, I think it also, again, a very important um, point that you mentioned at the end about ensuring um, a, a variety and diversity of voices and experiences um, are involved in, in continuing to sort of widen, um, widen the pool of people who have the ability to influence and feed into programs. Uh, so I want to turn now to Miron Avidan, who is the integration coordinator for HIAS, where she manages the community integration program for Ukrainian refugees in Europe. Uh, Miron, how has HIAS been involved um, in including Ukrainian refugees in the programs that you operate? And what have you learned from, from that experience with regard to um, the roles uh, that refugees can take on within programs and how that can be facilitated? Thank you, Susan. Um, I think first, before I get to your question, I'll give just a brief overview of uh, the program uh, so that it's in context um, uh, for everyone. Um, so the Welcome Circle program was uh, for Ukrainians was adapted from the uh, highest Welcome Circle program uh, in the US uh, that was launched to welcome in Afghani refugees in the summer of 2021. Um, the idea of the program sort of similarly to community sponsorship is that it facilitates small groups of uh, private individuals to come together uh, to host newly arrived uh, refugees in the context of Ukraine and in Europe. This is all being facilitated through uh, local Jewish communities. 
um, where sort of there's the stronger community support uh, behind these uh, welcome initiatives. Uh, the program was established because of the level of outpouring of support from these communities um, and the model was developed uh, developed to try and meet the interest that was coming from these communities. Um, the hope is, as with community sponsorship, that newcomers will be self-sufficient after uh, sort of a designated period. This program uh, I, I initially was a six-month period, um, but it's now been extended to reflect the reality on the ground, uh, the high number of cases uh, that all of the communities are working with, and also the structural challenges uh, across Europe at the moment and across the world in terms of sort of housing uh, and job opportunities. Um, it also differs from traditional community sponsorship because uh, of the guidelines under the Temporary Protection Directive, uh, which has meant that uh, refugees coming from Ukraine haven't needed to go through the asylum process or the resettlement process um, that is traditional in, tradi in sponsorship programs. Um, and also because of the rapid arrival of those from Ukraine and the continuous arrival, uh, a level of flexibility has been needed uh, in the program uh, to allow for the large number of families that each community is supporting. Um, so to put it into context, uh, in Europe at the moment, we're working with 16 welcome circles in 12 countries uh, and are supporting the integration of uh, approximately 800 uh, Ukrainian refugees uh, or 280 families uh, with the support of over 170 volunteers. Um, Highest's role in all of this is supporting Jewish communities to welcome in Ukrainian refugees and build their capacity to host refugees, um, hopefully for the future, uh, because for many of these communities, it's the first time that they're working uh, in this space and with refugees and really would like to be able to sort of build on this enthusiasm moving forward. Um, each community has an integration officer who sort of oversees uh, the work of the volunteers um, and sort of uh, it's their role to recruit additional uh, members and identify local partners uh, for the circle to connect with. Um, one of the core aims of the program is that, uh, that the communities will harness the support uh, of their network and grow their capacity to welcome refugees in the future um, and sort of uh, kind of continue uh, this process. Um, now to go to your questions, um, the engagement of refugees in the hosting programs, uh, I, I think because of the ongoing cycle that we're seeing with these circles, uh, it means that the beneficiaries who were supported uh, back at the beginning of uh, the full-scale Russian invasion in Ukraine in sort of February, March 2022, uh, they are now integrated into these communities and are actually signing up uh, to be welcome circle uh, volunteers and are looking to support those who are arrive arriving now. Um, and it's sort of created this mentorship effect where those who arrived first feel like they can give back to the community and support uh, those new arrivals and share their experiences. Um, and some volunteers, uh, beneficiaries who are volunteering uh, from the beginning in areas of translation uh, sort of were filling the gaps that the circles were lacking because uh, there was sort of a lack of Ukrainian uh, being spoke being spoken within those uh, receiving countries and uh, yeah we have 
uh, Ukrainian beneficiaries who have sort of been engaged in this function right from the start. Um, we uh, we weren't necessarily planning for this. The process happened fairly organically, um, but the feedback from the circles is that the coordinators uh, and from the coordinators is that those who arrived at the beginning are now integrated and wanting to stay involved and wanting to give back uh, to these communities that have welcomed them. Um, another factor and sort of reason for this participation is the large number of uh, Ukrainian diaspora in many countries around Europe um, who are very quick to respond and look to support uh, the newly arrived refugees. Um, for example, some Ukrainians came in 2013 uh, and also the, the majority came at the fall of the Soviet Union in the 90s. Um, and this sort of has meant that there's been a huge interest to host refugees uh, because of this sort of shared language and shared experience uh, of migration uh, from within the communities. It, it's particularly uh, prominent in countries like Germany uh, and one of our circles uh, in Germany, in UNA, uh, they had the majority of their uh, sort of regular community members are uh, were refugees themselves in the 90s um, and have now permanently settled in Germany uh, and sort of took it upon themselves to uh, sort of establish a circle informally uh, to welcome in new uh, new refugees. Um, of our current welcome circles, 78% uh, have like volunteers uh, and members who are Ukrainian refugees themselves, uh, which is, uh, I think, a very high number. Um, and of those circles, 33% now have coordinators uh, overseeing the programme, uh, who are refugees themselves um, and kind of are sort of creating this cyclical effect that we're seeing. Um, I think one of the core benefits of this is that uh, the challenge, the experiences and the challenges of integration, uh, like the people who are working on it are the ones who are best uh, placed to support those who are newly arriving because they have uh, gone through it themselves and can sort of, uh, they understand the process um, that uh, those uh, going through it now are going through. Um, I, I, there are also a number of challenges, uh, at least at the beginning, that we identified, uh, mainly sort of language barriers uh, for the coordinators to recruit uh, new volunteers into the program. Um, and I, I think uh, possibly a, a reason for the higher engagement of refugees uh, as volunteers now in the program is because of their sort of improved local language uh, in that context um, and sort of that shift that sort of happened over the last few months. Um, also, as the circles are all administered through Jewish communities, uh, at the start uh, in February 2022, the number of refugees in these communities was relatively low, uh, except for in Germany. Uh, and so the network for volunteer recruitment did not necessarily identify people with a refugee background. Um, and that is also a shift that we're now seeing um, also to speak from the perspective from our colleagues in the US who have been running the Welcome Circles for longer uh, and are also now partners of the US uh, Resettlement Department, uh, the communities who arrived in the US as refugees are like very keen to volunteer uh, to support new refugees uh, coming from the same country. This is particularly the case for those arriving from uh, Sudan and Eritrea. Um, and now what they're seeing in the Welcome Court program uh, is that 
those who've been resettled uh, are keen to sponsor uh, new refugees through the blind matching process. Um, and there's less of a uh, sort of need to support those with the same, uh, from the same country background. And they were just sort of wanting to uh, give back in general, um, rather than specifically to those from the arriving from the same communities, uh, which is, I think, a, a nice positive trend that we're seeing. Um, uh, from like for the next steps for us and sort of how our program is developing, uh, we are trying to launch pilot initiatives uh, to sort of target uh, to introduce target integration programs that try and mitigate some of these structural challenges uh, that the welcome circles are identifying. So housing and uh, job availability. Uh, these pilot programs, uh, sort of an aspect of the welcome circles are guided by the experiences of the communities and also of the refugees themselves uh, to say what uh, they their needs are and uh, where they feel the main uh, gaps lie uh, with the program as it is. Um, a key example is sort of language acquisition, uh, which remains sort of a key, the, one of the main challenges for finding uh, higher paid employment. Um, and in Belgium, the incoming Welcome Circle coordinator uh, is a Ukrainian refugee who arrived in Belgium in March 2022. Uh, and she, over the last month, uh, as she's been starting in her role has met with all of the families that the circle is still working with uh, to identify their needs uh, and introduce uh, sort of this embedded language program within the community uh, to bridge the gap between the uh, community members who are socially isolated themselves, either because they're elderly or uh, have another vulnerability, and also the refugee families who sort of just need someone to have sort of conversational classes with um, and sort of uh, develop those skills. Um, uh, yeah, I think as a next step for us, uh, the uh, we're seeing this trend sort of continue and we sort of are really trying to encourage circles to uh, utilize the expertise and the skills uh, of uh, those who are sort of integrated into the community and better established. Um, and sort of really, I think this trend of refugee participation in the circles will continue um, as long as we're supporting communities in this work. Thanks so much, Ryan. Uh, we are going to open the floor now to question and answer. And I invite everyone to please type any questions into the Q&A or chat box or to email events at migrationpolicy.org. Alternatively, you can tweet or whatever the word is for tweeting now that the name of Twitter has, has changed tweets your questions at migration policy uh, or the hashtag MPI discuss. So we already have a number of questions that have come in and I want to start off with a question we've got from a couple of different people with regard to the role of resources. Um, so I think Anna and Marona had both touched on this in their comments. You know, Anna, you mentioned that it takes uh, quite a lot of resources to support the involvement of refugees in different ways. And Maron, um, you also, you know, mentioned sort of the, the role of reaching out and capacity building among different refugee groups, particularly with regard to, um, you know, the role of, you know, eventually getting language support and, and these sorts of things. Um, there are sort of two dimensions to this. One is, you know, the, the organizational piece and how you actually build capacity and identify people and bring them in um, and how that can be supported. And then the other uh, question we've gotten is with regard to the role of compensation. 
and uh, you know to what extent refugees should be compensated for their time in taking on some of these roles, how organizations actually broach that, you know, how do you actually broach that topic with someone? So I wanted to turn those back to you. Um, you know, first, on the, uh, the first hand, you know, what kinds of resources are actually needed to support refugee engagement and who's responsibility should that be? Should that be the, the responsibility of governments that are sponsoring these programs, organizations themselves, private funders? And then secondly, what's the role of, of compensation for refugees themselves for their time? Um, should they be compensated? How and how do you, um, you know, as an organization considering this, how do you actually approach you know, that, that topic? Uh, so Anna, I might come to you first and then Amiron and Mahab uh, as you'd like to, to jump in. Yeah, so definitely. I think if we'd want meaningful participation, then you'd have to give dedicated time and resources, as I said, which means also building the trust with uh, the refugees, making sure also that they know that they will get something out of this, really explaining from the outset, because sometimes when you engage them in advocacy, it's always not clear that there will be a specific outcome, especially we're part of a transnational network. Policy changes happen slowly, so it's really important to to also take time to really explain um, what the steps are, what can be done, really set the frame well. Um, and then, yes, as I said, like training can go from public speaking to um, just in general, like learning about the landscape and everything. So. Yeah, I think also having a dedicated person in the organization, like best case scenario, that would be a person with lived experience, a refugee. Um, but yeah, setting up all of these mechanisms because ad hoc participation is not really what we're looking for. We're really trying to find a system where it's institutionalized, it's happening systematically, that they really are part of the projects and the process. Um, in terms of remuneration, I know that there are some organizations who prefer not to remunerate, but we do. So um, for us, it's first of all, it's really important that they know that a person that participates voluntary knows that they will get something out of it, at least personally, which is why we like to offer training as well. But then specifically in terms of like monetary uh, speaking, we do pay um, refugee advisors when they come into to our events to speak, to remunerate them uh, for their time. Thank you so much, Anna. And Miron, I'll maybe turn to you next on the screen. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll follow on from Anna talking about the remuneration and then also talk about sort of the context within the uh, communities that we work. Um, so I think it's depending on sort of uh, the role that uh, uh, sort of the refugee participation is happening in. I know that some of the circles uh, at the beginning when they were getting uh, Ukrainians uh, to come in as sort of translators were paying uh sort of uh the, the those uh refugees for their work and for the time uh, and also there's been sort of cases of them sort of being employed through the jewish communities um in some capacity in sort of like with a normal uh, employment contract and so it's sort of uh finding opportunities uh there um now i think 
the uh, our program sort of relies on these uh, Jewish communities and the sort of uh, the infrastructure that they have uh, in place to support um, uh, beneficiaries as they arrive in. Um, and so our role is sort of having check-ins with the welcome circle coordinators uh, and uh, sort of they then feed back to volunteers sort of uh, the experiences that they are learning about. Uh, and also we run uh, trainings uh, for the coordinators and the volunteers uh, sort of in this area and um, kind of how to improve engagement uh, there. And I definitely think that a lot of the voices uh, that come in, uh, that come in uh, in those spaces are coming from sort of the refugees themselves. Um, so yeah, I think it's sort of th the other element is also this circular uh, relationship of new arrivals coming in and sort of the incentive of those who are integrated to support newly arrivals is sort of their own uh, sort of uh, wanting to give back to those who are coming in. And uh, yeah, I think it kind of depends on the situation and uh, on the need uh, there. Thank you so much, Maron. Uh, we had two specific questions come in for um, particular panelists. And I apologize, Matt, yes, I just realized I forgot to come to you, Mahoab. Uh, please uh, feel free to come in on, on this point. Sorry, yeah, no worries. Uh, just shortly, um, obviously, um, piggybacking on Anna and um, um, Neuron's point, um, it is very, very important if we are talking about meaningful participation that we are compensating people for their time and effort and knowledge that we need to carry these programs. But I suppose um, going back to your question, I think it is also important to engage the governmental level as well, because um, just to maintain that social and legal protection for the status of the people here, when we talk about whether um their involvement and then like going into um when money is involved basically like in the future we want to make sure that their legal status or their benefits or their um their their ability to access social welfare is not damaged anecdotally since the last time we were in brussels and we talked about meaningful participation and then uh reimbursing people for their time anecdotally i was talking to some people about this point and uh some points raised for example like um there was this family who were saying like if we would for example be accepting money for our time we were worried that for example when we apply for medical cards uh, which is like just like a um a medical insurance here would that affect it because like everything here is means tested so um the same thing for example when their children apply for university and just um everything is means tested and if this particip participation is not the long-term job in which that will be accountable for their livelihood and the communities that they're living in is our situation we're doing it in a way in which the government involved and guaranteeing the protection of the services that they can apply to. Uh, I think that's a very, very important point to just discuss it and make sure um, that the benefit does not, um, is not like preceded later on by, by harm basically. So uh, this is the short point just to add. Uh, very important point. Thank you, Mahab. So we have had a couple of, specific com uh, questions coming in for particular panelists, and I just wanted to, to send those over to you very quickly for quick answers. Um, Maron, there was a question for you with regard to where welcome circles are located, if it's uh, possible to know um, specifically, you know, in what cities and how 
people can actually um, get involved. And then Anna, there was a question for you with regard to um, your comments about how uh, it's valuable to learn lessons from the involvement of refugees as well in the Global South and uh, wondering if there's a, a good place to go to look for resources on those points. Um, so Miron, I'll maybe turn to you first. Uh, yes, yeah, so I'm just getting the list up uh, so that I don't miss any. Um, so we uh, are currently working uh, in Ireland, um, sort of they're working across the country and I think are always looking for support in some of the more rural areas. Um, uh, also in Hungary, uh, Belgium, primarily in Brussels, um, in the Czech Republic, um, in Una and uh, Berlin, in Germany, um, in Łódź, uh, Poland, and also uh, Warsaw, um, and then in Barcelona and Madrid in Spain, um, and then circles that are sort of have stopped their first cycle, but I, I think are still engaged in this, if there is interest to reach out to them. Uh, in uh, Athens, in Greece, um, in Krakow, uh, in uh, Portugal, um, sort of also across Italy, and also uh, in Vienna, um, Austria. So um, I can also share uh, sort of my um, uh, some information about the circles and also my email address if there is interest there, and I can sort of connect you with uh, the relevant communities. Um, Thank you so much. I'll hand it over to Anna uh, with regard to the question on resources from the Global South. Yeah, so for example, right now, um, there's a ref res uh, refugee-led research festival, which is like a five-day um, festival happening in Nairobi in Kenya, uh, where uh, refugee-led research is being showcased. And also they have like panels um, on uh, how refugees can get engaged in research so that's for example like online can be attended online and in person um and so this is for example an initiative that can really inspire i think us here in europe as well to sort of showcase um, refugee-led research and sort of promote it um in terms of knowing a specific website or place where everything of this is pooled unfortunately um i i do not i do not know uh, for me or for us it was just yeah desk research and finding yeah people and or uh, events thanks sana and i will take the opportunity to mention that uh mpi recently released a report looking at how the effectiveness of refugee engagement um, in policy making can actually be uh, evaluated and how you can actually develop uh, theories of change and metrics to um, to better uh, monitor that practice, drawing on some lessons from uh, the ways in which refugees have been engaged also in programs in the Global South. And that's available on the MPI website at migrationpolicy.org. Uh, we've had quite a few questions, which uh, I think is just a testament to how um, timely this topic is. Uh, one that I've seen a couple of people come back to is this question of refugees as sponsors themselves. Um, first off, uh, a few people have noted that sponsorship programs, um, both in Europe and also in the US and in Canada, often have high financial commitment requirements. 
Uh, and there's a question with regard to whether or not that itself can be a barrier for refugees engaging in sponsorship and whether or not there are ways to um, facilitate refugee participation that um, can, you know, as sponsors themselves that can account for that barrier and help to address that barrier. Uh, and the other related question is with regard to the practice um, that's known as naming in, in the space of sponsorship, which means um, the ability of uh, individuals who are serving as sponsors to actually nominate and identify the person who they will be sponsoring. And that's come up uh, you know, quite a lot in terms of the engagement of diaspora in sponsorship programs and whether or not um, you know, diasporas might be uh, more, more engaged if they're actually able to name and identify family members uh, who they would like to, to support and sponsor themselves. Uh, so I wanted to turn that one back over to you all. First of all, you know, is the financial requirement a barrier for um, for refugees serving as sponsors themselves? And if so, what can be done about that? And secondly, uh, is there you know is there a role for naming in terms of you know, facilitating the participation of uh, more participation of refugees in sponsorship? Um, so Marilyn, I might come to you. Oh, Anna, do you want to jump in first? That's fine. Yeah, I can go quickly. So I, I will give the perspective here of uh, my colleagues in the US, uh, because they're sort of uh, working with the sort of more traditional community sponsorship, uh, and are sort of are now linked to the Welcome Call program uh, of uh, like refugees arriving. Currently, the Welcome Call program is doing blind matching. So where circles are sort of matched with the family uh, based on need rather than through naming. Uh, and actually, uh, I, I think I mentioned this in my talk, there are a couple of uh, circles of uh, refugees who were resettled to the US who have uh, signed up to be hosts, uh, also to be sponsors in this context. Um, which is uh, lovely and I don't think it was expected to have a sort of uh, two circles made up exclusively of uh, arrived refugees. Uh, they are expecting that when they uh, introduce, when the program introduces the naming part of the program, that more uh, refugees will sign up to sort of host uh, people from their community or from their network that they know about. Um, so it's, it's happening a bit of both. I think definitely the naming aspect will encourage uh, that participation, but it's also been really encouraging to see um, that even without that, with this blind aspect, there's still uh, the desire to support uh, those uh, like refugees to come uh, through sponsorship initiatives. Anna, over to you. Yeah, um, to this like topic of refugees as sponsors, I think what we always like, caution is that obviously it's only if they have the time actually to give this uh, back as really sponsors. And then also I think it should be seen in a flexible way where maybe then they do not have to come up with the financial uh, commitments, but are more coming in at the inclusion stage and helping settling in the first few months. And also I think one could think of, of um, sponsorship groups where you'd have clusters of people um, dedicated for different things. So you could have a lot of students, for example, who are only tasked with fundraising and then elderly people who are retired with only driving them around and then also uh, previously sponsored refugees and other persons with lived experience coming in to give that extra um, inclusion support and sort of peer support. 
Um, on the issue of uh, naming, I think this is definitely something that we are very interested in promoting. Um, of course, there's always um, some people are against it because it takes away sort of the protection um, aspect, but we think it should happen alongside of each other that you should be able to name people because that would obviously draw in diaspora um, more and also at the same time have still this avenue for uh, people in need of, of protection to, to come in. But uh, naming is definitely something that we're looking at. And I see my colleague Gabriela has her hand raised. Um, I don't know, Gabriela, if you want to come in, if your internet connection is now better. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Okay, perfect. Sorry, Suzanne, if, if I can just jump in for a second to uh, please, please. to complement what Anna was saying. Yes, uh, I work with Anna at ICMC Europe and the SHARE Network. And um, I just wanted to come in um, to the question about the, the financial requirements and, and perhaps um, if there's a possibility of more diaspora or refugee communities forming uh, sponsor groups if the financial requirements or the other administrative burdens were lessened. And I, I completely think so. We've seen this in, in many cases in, uh, you know, in countries, for example, in Germany, there was, I remember uh, a group that we talked to, it was a, a group of refugees that initially they had difficulties um, meeting the financial requirements uh, to form the groups and, and the requirements for housing. And then um, when the program was consolidated, there was some redesign of the program and the, the requirements in terms of the sponsorship duration, in terms of housing, in terms of the, the funding that they had to raise to be able to sponsor um, was lowered. And then they were able to, you know, to put in another application. And I believe uh, perhaps they were successful in this one. Also, what we've seen is often to increase participation of refugees. It helps if you have, if they are connected to um, uh, either a, you know, a sponsorship, intermediary sponsorship organization that supports them by forming the groups from different members of the community. So it can be hybrid groups. And we've seen this in France. Uh, often they have um, diaspora members. They have uh, members from faith-based communities, from the LGBT community. So they're very diverse groups. So the more diverse, the, the more successful usually they are in supporting the integration of, of refugees who are coming in through these programs. Um, another thing that I was going to say for to help for the to lower the financial uh, threshold is one thing is public funding would help so for example i've seen um examples which also kind of go with naming um in canada that um in this partnership for example that they have with rainbow railroad which is an organization that supports uh, lgbt um community uh, with safe passage um to to different countries across europe north america and canada one of the things that they have is um they provide the government provides funding um to um the refugees and to the communities of the sponsors to to be able to support in the first three months, for example, of the sponsorship period. So financial support, I think, um, either in the form of public funds or from philanthropy organizations for these sponsorship groups um, would also, I think, support the inclusion of, you know, more diverse uh, volunteers. And then to the second question of, of naming to, to complement what Anna said, I think, um, we have seen there's different types of naming that could be explored. I think um, 
you know, you have the kind of traditional naming that you see in the Canadian sponsorship program. Um, but, you know, in Europe, I think uh, in Ireland, they're starting to experiment a little bit with naming, um, especially within the context of the Afghan evacuees. Um, many of the, the sponsors actually named the, the refugees who came in through through that um through the Afghan displacement, uh, who, who were welcomed through sponsorship. Also, I think in Belgium, we had kind of one ad hoc example. So it's, I think in, in Europe, you're starting to see it, but in more of an ad hoc basis is not um, kind of part of the, the framework of the sponsorship program, as you see in, in, in Canada and, um, and perhaps now um, we'll start to see in the US later. But uh, I think there's a possibility to kind of explore different options and always keep it uh, not just naming. I wouldn't, say just naming I would have a kind of hybrid option where you have you know come in through the resettlement program or the humanitarian corridors but also have an option where um, uh, volunteers can can be involved in, in naming the people um, that they uh, that they sponsor and this would help um, support the the improved access to these programs of, of diaspora communities I think as, as we've seen in, in Canada and, and elsewhere uh, thanks. Thank you much, Gabriela. Important points. I want to make sure we have a chance to um, for Malhab to speak on this point in particular because um, you are actually a sponsor and have had this experience. And would be curious to hear about um, your experiences to the extent to which um, you know you view uh, the financial requirements that are placed on on sponsors as potentially being a barrier, and whether or not um, there would be you know wider interest or you know possibility to introduce something like naming in the future, and if that would have value. Thank you. Um, I suppose, and speaking from my own experience, um, the financial requirements do definitely pose a challenge for the refugees themselves to sponsor programs because when we have refugees coming, obviously the trauma of displacement and becoming a refugee itself takes years to resolve. And we are not just talking about the psychological trauma or just like the moving trauma, we're also talking about the financial trauma because a lot of people, when they are becoming refugees and displaced, they lose a lot of money and they can move across socials in a negative way in a way that they will just become sometimes you see it often that people become destitute uh, so coming into a new country and building themselves can take years especially that they are starting a bit further from people who have already been in the country or citizens for some time so in addition to that the race to integrate um, is felt by the refugees when they come here because they feel like once they arrive it's on they have to be on the game, they do everything that they can, whether it's languages, whether it's the schools, whether it's um, finding jobs and building this life also takes um, from that um, ability to sponsorship right away. And I suppose like it's like a, when you are on a plane, you have to put your mask first to be able to help the one next to you and put their mask second. Um, in addition to that, the time limits, because again, if we are talking about the integration of the refugees themselves, the time restraints is, is, is a big um, limiting factor in that regard. All that said, when I see it time and time again, uh, when the refugees feel that there is a meaningful participation that they can feel, that they can elicit change and help shape the policies or even help um, people coming in and being resettled also, all the limiting factors that I have mentioned also they 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 will be lessened. So 
I suppose that I see it again, time and time again, people would participate, will take the bait cuts and will take the financial, um, uh, the financial limitations to a bigger degree when they feel they actually can help and can be uh, meaningful, meaningfully participate in this regard. Uh, on the naming um, point, I suppose this might be a bit controversial for some people because like that can like create, for example, a cohort of a population where we have an overrepresentation from a certain country than not another country. But I suppose in regard, this opens a question of what is the end goal? Is it um, the number of people are being resettled or is it um, a wider distribution of the locations where we have people like resettled from? And I suppose this is a very interlocated question that uh, can be examined locally within every organization within themselves or even with the community sponsorship programs within themselves. I suppose there is no blanket statement. Does naming help motivating? motivate uh, refugees to sponsor our program? Absolutely. Because again, um, say it again, when you are refugees and you come from a certain country where they're facing difficulties and, and war or whatever type that caused you to be a refugee, more likely you know other people that will, you know will benefit from this program. So you are more likely to name. But the other side as well, there is people who just happy to blindly sponsor people from um, a background that they are not familiar with. So I suppose it's a very, very question uh, that can be determined by in, on a very local level, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. And I think also an important point about um, the meaningfulness of participation in and of itself being a motivating factor and you know ensuring that, that um, what not only is your voice heard, but actually acted upon and taken into, into account. Um, well, we are very close to our end time. I want to thank uh, both our panelists um, for joining us for what for me has been quite a, a fascinating conversation and also our audience um, who have been extremely engaged in asking your questions. Uh, I apologize if there are questions that are unanswered, but we uh, tried to get to as many as we could in the time we had. Uh, for anyone who would like the audio or video of this event afterwards, it will be available on the event website. Uh, if there are any reporters on the line, please uh, reach out to Michelle Middlestadt at M-I-M-M-I-T-T-E-L-S-T-A-D-T at migrationpolicy.org if you have any questions. And again, please make sure to check out MPI's website for upcoming work related to the initiative, Building Capacity for Private Sponsorship in the European Union, or CAPS-EU. The webinar today is part of this initiative, which is led by the Irish Refugee Protection Program and supported by the Belgian reception agency, Vatasil, as well as, of course, Migration Policy Institute Europe. The three-year project is co-financed by the European Commission under the Asylum, Migration, and Integration Fund. Thank you so much again for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you again on another occasion.